Must be like the wolf pack, not like six pack. Teamwork. Yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this latest episode of There's No I In Podcast, a podcast about teams, being in teams and running teams and generally getting the most out of your team. I am Mark Johnson. I'm a performance maker and uh, teacher, and I am joined as always by uh, my co-host, Sean Gallagher, a sports coach. Hello, Sean. Hey, Mark. We're going to be talking, as always, about teams and uh, asking each other the difficult questions when it comes to how uh, we run teams. So we have a phenomenal guest today. Yes, Mark, we do indeed. Really looking forward to this one. We're going to be joined by uh, a chap called Harry Cheslaw. Now, Harry uh, has come to us via Sean. Yeah, so um, a, a mutual friend um, kind of put us together after listening to the podcast um that friend is someone that uh i have both taught uh as an ex-student and uh, also worked with as a colleague um uniquely um and we've stayed in touch uh and that's been uh really good because it has led us to this uh this guest now harry um which i'm again really looking forward to yeah harry uh works in a very particularly interesting field uh, he's a data scientist he's going to talk about that a little bit more but one of the things that he wanted to come on to talk about which we get to uh, eventually in the podcast is he has this passion for a book called principles by ray dalio uh, and it is a a manual a literal manual in some ways of how to run an organization and how to keep a team going. And we are going to be talking about uh, radical truth and radical transparency uh, and how you uh, keep a team going no matter where you are, whether you're the newest member of the team or the person who set it up. And we get into it. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, some some real good uh, practical things I think in in this episode from pulled from the book um, that I think all of us could think about uh, maybe bringing into our own workplace and just us personally looking at how we approach um, ourselves uh, within a team. So should be a good one uh, and really helpful for people, I think. And with that, let's just jump straight into it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, our conversation this week with Harry Cheslaw. Teamwork. Yes. yes. So I'm really excited to welcome onto the podcast. Uh, today, we've got Harry Cheslaw. Harry is a data scientist in uh, Fashion House, um, but also is going to be talking to us about the principles uh, of Ray Dalio and the book principles that uh, Ray Dalio put out. Um, so welcome, uh, Harry, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. You're, you're absolutely welcome. I gave you the briefest of introductions there. So if you would like to, uh, and don't mind, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. So yeah, so, so as you said, I currently work as a data scientist within the decision intelligence team. And our role in the team is to partner with various business units to optimize and grow the business through data. So yeah, not something people normally, of course, associate with fashion. Um, when you kind of conjure images of fashion, you think mostly of the creative side versus let's say the analytical data-driven side. Mm. Um, but it's mm. a very, so it's kind of a very new field, um, but a very interesting one at the same time to square the left and the right brain. And is this something that you, uh, has been your educational journey and your employment journey. You, you trained to be a data scientist. Not exactly. So I went to university to study accounting. Um, as you can guess, I dropped out within the first term. Um, but while I was at university, I wanted to delve deeper into a passion of mine, which is Savile Row and bespoke tailoring. So yeah. I went down Savile Row and I gave in kind of a letter to all the tailors in which I said, if you need somebody to pick up buttons from the floor to get you a coffee, I will come in free of charge and do that for you. Wow. And everybody rejected me apart from one tailor, um, which is Geeves and Hawk. So number one, Savile Row. Yeah. So while I was working 
um, was at university doing accounting. On my weekends and for one day a week, I was working on Savile Row, doing whatever odd jobs they needed me to do. When I dropped out, I ended up doing an internship for six months in fashion, while on my weekends still working for the tailor. After wow. my internship came to a close, I accepted a full-time job at the tailor and ended up representing them at the Bergdorf Goodman department store in New York for a year. It's a lot of fun. Oh, wow. Really that crazy sounds, place to work. That, yeah, that this story like is fun. great already, Harry. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm not going to be saying much today. Just You just talk. It's only 50% made up, don't worry. <laughs> Everyone loves a good story. They don't care if it's true or not. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so I came back after a year in New York, um, started in one of the graduate roles, taught myself how to code, and then luckily, um, luckily ended up being one of the founding members of this new team. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, there's so, so much in there, and I think uh, Sean you're likely to dip into this more but it sounds like the the choices you've made and the outcomes have been completely driven by some kind of f- fire in your gut you know the it's a ni- nicer term than uh, than stupidity <laughs> yeah we talk about uh educational context quite a lot because sean and i both work in uh in education and one of the kind of the holy grails is that sense of uh, self-motivation and self-drive. But it also sounds like that that self-awareness to know this isn't working the way I wanted it to work. So um, it's not quite on the subject of teams yet, but I'd be really interested to hear. Like, how did you know I need to I need to explore further? I need to I need to maybe look somewhere else at that point when you were deciding uh, the accountancy degree might not be your path. What were you what were you thinking? (laughs) It's a good question. Um, So I think there's always been I don't know if you guys have ever discussed or had anyone here who talked about Peter Thiel at all or if you two have read Zero to One. No, um, not no. not read it. Peter Peter Thiel was one of the. Uh, he's an angel investor and was one of the founders or founding investors of PayPal. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he was part of the PayPal mafia along with Elon Musk and a guy called Reid Hoffman who founded LinkedIn, and mm. two people end up find it founding a uh, YouTube. And he has a great book called Zero to One, which I recommend to everybody watching about um, how you build companies. And in this book and in a lot of his talks, he talks about the idea of kind of you have two doors, right? You have the traditional door, which everybody go through. Uh, that door would maybe involve like high levels of education, internships. And there's always going to be a side door. And that side door is kind of down the road. Most people don't travel, but because it's far less empty, there's far more possibilities. So I think because I dropped out of university, um, I knew I kind of would never have the option to go down the traditional door. I can never apply yeah. maybe for a traditional data science role where you need a PhD. So I always have to differentiate myself by doing things other people were not doing um, yeah. as a kind of differentiating factor. Being that person who has specific experience and the uniqueness of the journey. Exactly. Harry, did you, did you read that book? Um sort of during that journey or is this something later on that you've just been able to kind of connect the dots to your journey and the book or did you read the book and go have that kind of in the back of your mind that maybe I go through this side door? Uh, I think, I mean, not originally, like you say, but it kind of was something that you look back and connect and understand, okay, that was a framework I was operating in. Arguably, it could be like you are just uh, looking back and putting a logical framework on emotionally driven decisions but I prefer to look at it the uh, the second way. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Right, right. So that's super fascinating and incredibly impressive. There's the part of your story that links directly into what we're doing. And I, I do want to get on to Ray Dalio because I know very little about him. But this team that you are on now, you said you effectively were part of the foundation 
of that team that that team did not exist before you put it together with people how did you find that group of people or how did that group of people find you was it something that they were like this is an idea we want people to do it or did we just have the right people in the room so the team and the idea from the team came from two people i think they're probably going to listen to this podcast after so hello guys the idea was uh, kind of concocted from them um, on the basic premise that data could be used in a better way then they were able to kind of tag me in to start this journey in April 18. I think the interesting component to our team versus maybe more traditional teams is the fact that the subject we're tackling, especially in fashion, is very undefined. There aren't right. many equivalent teams um, worldwide and especially in fashion. And there's no rule book. You kind of can't Google the problems we have. So um, right. it was a case of learning as you go, um, but with a firm belief that the core tenets of using data laid a very firm bedrock. So Harry, if you didn't, if you hadn't had gone to Savile Row um, and then to New York, would you kind of not have the relevant experience to be tackling the problems you are now as a data scientist, but within the fashion world, if that makes sense? You know, could 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 a data scientist from a big company somewhere else that isn't fashion, even if they were amazing and had been doing it for twenty years, would they be able to come in and solve the problems you're you're talking about, or is is that what kind of makes you unique within that team? If that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So, so like you say, you know, there's if you want to start a data science team in the company, there's kind of a traditional approach, which is you hire people without the domain expertise. So either yeah. consultants like a BCG, or you would hire a PhD from, you know, a PhD in let's say particle yeah. physics, and you would ask them to apply a similar mindset to a problem in fashion. Uh, there's yeah. a very interesting company called Renaissance Technologies, which is one of the most successful hedge funds of all time. And Renaissance is different from other companies in the sense that it will employ people with no experience in fashion, sorry, in finance. So yeah. it hires PhDs who are PhDs in astrophysics, particle physics, biology, and then they apply similar things to finance. So it's about taking a, taking a lens that you understand really, really well and seeing what happens when you pass the domain through it and seeing what you can learn from that that you 100% wouldn't have known before. Exactly. And, and finance is an interesting application of this because if you're not contrarian in finance, you can't make any money. If you're part of the market, <laughs> yeah. by definition, you've lost. So mm. it really helps in those environments to have people who don't think the same way as somebody working in another institution. Yeah. But on my side, it was... The, the, money, uh, the money ball principle, the kind of when they started applying analytics to baseball. Exactly. Um, it's all about how you can differentiate yourself from other people. From the idea within finance and our team was always a case of we, can, we are special versus other teams because we have that domain knowledge. So we understand fashion as well as data science. So you said in, kinds of, in terms of data science, uh, you're kind of maybe a step ahead within the kind of fashion industry. Is... I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of money in, in fashion. So is, is, uh, were you surprised when you went into this that maybe it wasn't where you thought it may be and that people weren't digging into the data so much um, for such a big industry? That's a really interesting question, right? Why is fashion or why are creative industries behind um, other industries? Because like you say, fashion on a global scale is one of the largest businesses in the world. Um, I think especially in luxury fashion, uh, you have a big cultural bias. Yeah. So traditionally, businesses have grown, take a Dior or a Gucci, of the, of the creative vision of a single person. Yeah. And they've not grown through data or through optimizing existing business structures. Yeah. What you yeah. don't want to do, of course, is create a data-driven culture, which would take away from the creative culture. Yeah. So it's really interesting interplay and balance between applying data while at the same time respecting that 
creativity has to be at the core of everything you do. Yeah, of course. Of course. That's interesting because we, uh, we're coming, Sean's coming at this from a sports perspective. I'm coming at this from a uh, performance uh, and uh, performing arts perspective. This is your, you're maybe the first person we've had coming at it from a business perspective, but it's really interesting to, to recognize how that has, has to be filtered through the strength of the, um, the do, the domain, the nature of the creativity in your sense, you know, Manchester United, one of the biggest businesses in sports still has to be good at football. Yeah. Uh, you kind of always have to, um, build these organizations and we talk we've talked about quite small teams but the idea of an organization that has these subgroups of of focus all having to link together how do you correlate to the create what's your relationship to the creative side of that of of the organization um we are quite distinct from the creative side in the sense um because the, the core tenant of i think if you're of any brand or what it should be is you should always protect the creativity you don't want to inject data into the creative process because you will take away from it uh, yeah. i think the point you made before about money balls a really interesting example in the sense of maybe help me on this but i don't remember exactly when money ball when the story occurred 1990 it was in the maybe yeah the 90s late 90s around that time so we're so. 15 to 20 years later and the role of a scout still exists, right? So it's yeah. not become a purely quantitative process at all. It's yeah. always about letting the scout do their job from a intangible qualitative level while helping injecting as much as you can data from a quantitative side. Yeah. And as the person on your team who has this, who isn't the PhD in... Uh, computer science or um, astrophysics, but is the person who sold jackets in in that regard, are you part of that crossover? Are you the are you the go between? Is that how is that how it, it seems to work? Or do you bring do you bring that creativity? It will always be a partnership between kind of the creative side and the data side. I think it even goes back to um, the way the weather forecasters operate. So remember a while ago reading a really interesting study, but I think when most people think about forecasting weather, they think it is done at a very calculated level, which it is. I mean, if you look at kind of the supercomputers that the National Weather Agency in the US uses, they're immense. But at the same time, you have weather pattern spotters who will look at the numbers of the weather forecasting systems and will adjust them. And they will record what the computer said and what the person amended. And they can see from this if it was beneficial to have the human intervention. Yeah, there's always, there's always a reading of the data. There's always an interpreting of the information. Exactly. So, so Harry, we're not going to get to a stage where AI takes over fashion then. Is that, is that what we're saying? <laughs> I don't think so, no. I think you always, it may, it may definitely help. But yes, I, I don't envision us getting to that process or that place anytime soon. The first robot fashion visionary. It could happen. I mean, if you look at the advances, it, it could happen. So, Harry, obviously, one of the main reasons for trying to get you on today was to talk about one of your, your passions, uh, which is the, the principles um, as laid down by Ray Dalio. Um, so obviously we are talking because we have a mutual friend in Chris Morrell. Uh, so there's my shout out, um, who, uh, you know, who's a really good guy and he listened to the podcast and he said, listen, I have a guy who is perfect for this podcast. Um, he loves this kind of, uh, topic and this, uh, subject matter, um, and you have to get him on. And I was like, let's go, let's get it. So, um, I want to know a little bit about Ray Dalio obviously something about the principles and kind of why it kind of sparked your interest so much um, and uh, whether or not you see kind of him as an inspiration um, and yeah, just have a little bit of a talk about that. Yeah, how you, how you use him. Yeah, and how you use him in your kind of day-to-day. -day. So over to you, Harry. Yeah, so I mean, I've been fascinated with Ray Dalio and principles 
for about two years now, ever since I read the book itself. So to provide you some context, so Ray Dalio founded a company called Bridgewater in 1975. And this company is the world's largest hedge fund. So it manages over twice the amount of money as a second largest hedge fund. So it is a truly a true giant in its industry. Um, it's also been labeled things like a Fortune labeled it number five in its most influential private companies. So even outside the realm of finance, it is hugely influential. And really the key question is what differentiates Bridgewater from the competitors? Because it's such a competitive, competitive industry. And if right. you ask the founding team, they'll tell you that the key factor are the principles and culture of Bridgewater. Right. And these principles are codified in the book Principles itself. We're going to be saying world principles a lot, I think. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, this is true. Well, I think that, Harry, I think that's kind of part of it. So um, on, on your kind of uh, recommendation, um, you know, I, I, I've got it on Audible. And, uh, you know, it's a big book for me. And I'm a, you know, I'm a slow listener and reader. So <laughs> I'm, only in the, I'm only on the first couple of chapters. Um, but for me, it was interesting that he spoke about kind of writing everything down. So when we say when we say principles, 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 it's because he put them down in a book, hence why we're talking about them. And I know personally, I'm very bad at writing things down if I have good ideas or if I think that could be something that I'd want to go back to. And he was really good at that. Um, so that that was really interesting to me. So yeah, I think you what you kind of refer to is how do we even get to this principles book in the first place? So when exactly. Dalio founded the company, there weren't many people. So in terms of dealing with problems and with spreading a cultural message, you can do it person to person. Then as the firm grew, he understood that's impossible. There aren't enough hours in the day. So he started writing down um, these principles and codifying them into like an A4 sheet. This then became a pamphlet, became a chapter and became a book which was required reading for everybody who started at Bridgewater. This internal document got leaked and ended up being downloaded 750,000 times, which spurred him to releasing the book as we know it today for people external to the company. And like you say, a really interesting idea is writing down and codifying the principles of a company and its culture and how you deal with problems for a group of people to share. Yeah, exactly. We've talked about that on previous podcasts and had a couple of other really great examples. Uh, Sean, I remember we talked about the example of the England rugby team having uh, this binder. Yeah, of this expensive what it binder. means to be a member of this group. Yeah, and how how that that answers. Not so much, actually, it pre-answers all of the questions you're likely to have in a way that says, so if you are not doing this, there's no excuse. You've, you've, you have everything you need in order to be a part of this team. And if you take the next step from here and you're not on board with all of this, that's on you. <laughs> exactly. And you can kind of view it as like a legal framework, right? So it's like, look, we're going to give you this manual. This manual will tell you how to deal with issues as well as give you a framework for how you resolve issues. Yeah. And I know that if I go into a courtroom, even if I don't, if, even if the court goes against me, I still know I can trust and believe in the legal judicial framework of the UK. Yeah, you have a bunch of expectations of prior knowledge of uh sets of rules that you know people are going to keep to that allow you to participate uh comfortably and confidently exactly ha harry so i my my first uh crowbar into um into making a making a relation back to your current role in somewhere that is you know such a creative company do things like principles go against maybe not principles but this framework does that go against creativity and does it hold 
creatives back and is it not something that you've seen much within your experience within the fashion industry or is it really tightly structured and you know they follow a very similar kind of framework to a big fortune 500 company or something like that when we have these structures in place and these principles that maybe sports teams have and and big kind of finance companies and hedge funds have can we do they work within a fashion industry because there is that kind of creativity versus kind of structure and strong principles or you know do they work very similarly yeah so i think what really drew me to principles initially and the book and the framework he advocates is the fact that it's so applicable to other industries so the core of rate of what principles are is the idea of the idea meritocracy so idea meritocracy differentiates from, let's say, traditional autocracy because decisions are made um, just after the best ideas versus based on titles or hierarchy. And he defines an equation in the book, an idea meritocracy, as being when you have radical truth plus radical transparency plus believability-weighted decision-making. I think like every company would do better if it had especially those first two things. Sure. Repeat the third one for me. So radical truth, radical transparency, and... An idea-weighted meritocracy. Got you. Um, and, we, and we can unpack these more in detail because they're really, really fascinating. Mm. Um, but I think every, every company and even every unit of people, be it an army or a family, could always benefit from being more transparent and more truthful. Yes, definitely. <laughs> And how, so that's kind of, that's kind of the doorstep. That's the, if you're going to pass through, uh, this is what you can expect. Radical truth, radical transparency, and an idea weighted meritocracy. Um, how does that apply in practice? Yeah. So it's something that I think everybody would agree with, but not many people can handle. So some mm. context, right? One third of hires at Bridgewater leave within two years. I mean, a lot of people describe it as a cult because it can really be very severe. So to give you some, some yeah. examples, right? So I think one of the most striking examples is baseball cards. So as you guys know, like you have baseball cards, you have top trumps, which list yeah. your weaknesses and strengths. And if you work at Bridgewater, everybody has a baseball card. And it will say, for example, openness. Scale of one to 10, yeah. good, bad, right? Attention to detail, creativity. And these are all transparent. Everybody votes on each other. And what this means, if you have a project and you can say, okay, I need to hire two people who are creative. Two people with yeah, a high who are Top 10 detail. creative people, yeah. That, I, would, I wouldn't be chosen. <laughs> that wouldn't be my strong point. And that's from that's from Dalio himself to the newest person in the building. Exactly. Okay. I think I think there was something interesting in there, um, Harry, when he discovered that people, some people in the company, maybe not so much the high the higher ups in in the higher positions, but maybe the kind of mid level to lower level employees, really didn't like his approach. Um, kind of in the beginning and he had to have like a real sit down chat with you know some really close people around him and he kind of really had to internalize kind of his thoughts and feelings and his behaviors and he kind of had that fork in the road whether he maybe continues to be this autocratic kind of dictator or whether he moves in a slightly different direction and I think the principles kind of helped him on that journey would you agree? Yeah, so, so as you referred to, right, there were kind of two defining moments which led to the principles. So the first was in 1982. So Dalio made a bet that there would be an emerging market debt crisis in Latin America. And this bet was very controversial at the time and turned out to be right. So he was seen as kind of an economic wizard. Then he made a second bet after this. This bet, he basically guaranteed the economy would go into recession, and it never happened. So Bridgewater fell flat on its back. He had to let, let go all of his staff. He even had to borrow $4,000 from his dad to make ends meet. 
and this made him change his thinking. And his thinking was, previously it was, I'm right. And after this disaster, it was, how do I know I'm right? And to find this out, he said, okay, I need to hire the smartest people who disagree with me. The second example was the example that you alluded to, was basically him getting a memo signed by his top three lieutenants saying, Ray, you're treating the people lower down terribly as leading to suboptimal performance. And this made him realize, hold on a second, why did it take so long for people tell, to tell me what I was doing wrong? So I need to make a culture which is totally transparent. So no matter at what level you are, you have the ability to turn to me or anybody else and say, you're doing this wrong. And there's a great example in the book of an email he received from somebody lower down, who I think was an analyst at the time, basically saying to him, Ray, you performed terribly in this meeting today for these reasons. And he replied saying, incredible. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. I wish more and more people were as transparent and open with me as you are. You really have to back yourself, I think, if you're that guy, right? <laughs> well, that's a, that's that's an interesting point you make, Sean, and I think is one of the is one of the things that he's contending with is, in theory, no, you don't. In a in a in a situation where a protocol for radical transparency and exactly. radical honesty exists, you don't have to back yourself. You just have to back the book, back the system. Exactly. Your loyalty is to the truth, not the And the existing power dynamic that we're used to, that we're enculturated to before we step into a space of radical honesty and radical transparency is, is what he and what those people are actually fighting against. That guy was not exactly. uh, challenging his boss in that moment. He was challenging the concept of bosses as we understand it in the world. And there was a great interview I saw with somebody who worked at Bridgewater and he made the point that we can spend all of our time trying to discover the truth versus playing politics and thinking, how will somebody respond to what I'm saying about them? So you don't have to think in this right. structure of, will the co-founder, will the founder of the firm take action against me or telling him what he did wrong? Instead, all of your time is spent on how can we uncover for un can we understand the world better? And how can we really end up with the right answer at the end of the day? So one of the things that Sean and I have talked about uh, on, the la on one of the last podcasts was actually the idea of how you understand yourself to be a team rather than a community. Um, and we were circling around this idea of a shared goal being yeah. what, what justifies teamness is that we're all in it to reach a thing because what i'm interested in with this entire setup is the the because i'm from the the wafty performing arts uh and expression arena is the space for radical kindness because the protocol allows me to say you're doing this wrong but for your benefit i but for your benefit i also f feel like the protocol ought to uh, allow for me to do that without being a dick yeah exactly so that you so that you're not able to take it personally and the environments i work in i would consider that a, a third step of or a fourth step of radical kindness where i'm also taking ethics into account but possibly in a business arena that's not that's not part of the shared goal it's just understood that the thing that we're working towards does not require personal response. Maybe. And I don't like know. you say, it's everybody agreeing that I have a duty to you to help you get better and, un and to fill your blind spots and you have that same duty to me because our higher power is making the right decision which we all benefit from. Yeah. And that agreement that what I'm saying, I'm my duty for you to get better is in this particular field, domain or direction because we have joined together, you know, because 
because we took that first step across the threshold of being a part of yeah. this Bridgewater team or some other team. I trust that the thing you're trying to make me better at is something worth getting better at or I value Yeah. That. So I'm not going, well, you're telling me to be this person, but I don't know why that matters. Yeah, I think, and you touched on a really interesting point, which Ray brings up a lot, which is the idea of the two yous. So he defines, if you think about the human brain, right? I mean, I'm no expert by any stretch of the imagination, but he describes <laughs> it as being... But you, you have one. <laughs> exactly. You <laughs> have one. <laughs> um, so you have the amygdala, which is kind of the old ancient part of the brain, which is the part which is your animal part. Then you have the prefrontal cortex, which was developed later after the amygdala. And this was kind of attached on board. And this, this um, controls your executive functions, like logic, like reasoning. This is kind of what differentiates humans from other animals. And when I'm having a conversation with you, and when I'm criticizing you, helpfully anyway, I'm having a conversation with your ancient part of your brain, which is saying, this person's attacking me, therefore I need to attack them back, as well as the yeah. developed part, which is saying, hold on a second, I can take this on board and self-improve. There's a constant battle. Yeah. So it's a constant battle between which part of that brain will come out on top. But I think that that is a really interesting framing of why we respond in the way that we do for criticism. If you have a book that says, this is how we are going to interact, if you have this doctrine, then you remove the fear that that causes the fight or flight. If you can say, I'm not going to lose my job because this person says I'm bad at communicating, uh, or rather this person has told me that I didn't communicate well in that circumstance, yeah. and here's how I could communicate better, then I don't, I'm, I probably have to learn how not to, but I don't have to respond in fight, fight or flight in that moment. Yeah, I think it provides an interesting framework as well for you personally, when you're thinking, hold on a second, am I acting this way because the ancient part of my brain is telling me to act this way? Or am I acting this way because the executive part of my brain wants me to act this way? And once you have that framework, I think you can stop yourself from making emotionally driven gut choices. But 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 again, Harry, like like Mark said, only only if you're within a company yeah. that that the environment allows you to even think about the two options. Yeah. You, you, you know, it, you know, to have that space to do that. I, I've um, obviously looking through some of the principles, you know, when he talks about, you know, a, a kind of quote here of don't feel bad about mistakes, love them. Now, which is an artist. If, if yeah. there's an artist statement, that's that's the artist statement. Exactly. I mean, how how far, you know, from your research, uh, you know, and I'm sure you're very well, well read because, you know, you've already given us many examples from different books, <laughs> uh, you know, and within that business world and, and those big companies, how radical a statement is that from, you know, the owner of a, a huge, massive, successful company? Yes, I think the really interesting thing, right, about how Bridgewater deals with mistakes is, like you say, one, they treat them as kind of jewels. So every mistake is a learning opportunity. But two, they don't really tolerate this making the same mistake twice. And they operate in quite a similar way to the way aviation operates. So if you're a pilot and you make a error when landing on JFK, you have a window of 24 hours and if you report that error within 24 hours, no action is taken against you. Of course, within uh, certain limits. If it doesn't end up on the news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a file or in the Hudson River. <laughs> yeah. The beauty of this is all of these mistakes are shared in a central system. So other pilots can learn from your error. And it also means that if we see five or six different pilots making the same error when landing at night in JFK, like, hold on a second, guys, maybe the lighting is wrong or it's not clear. Yeah, maybe the up. system is broken, yeah. So they deal the same way. So if you make a mistake, you're required, it's like your obligation to log that mistake 
in a publicly accessible forum for other people to learn and for the company to make systematic changes would prevent this mistake from being made. You would add another principle to the list to deal with X, Y, and Z. So Harry, when, when you walk into work every day as a data scientist, how, how many of these principles are you kind of carrying around in, in, in your head? And how, how much do you kind of feel that I can make mistakes? And regardless of the company you work for or anything like that, but just you as a person and, and what you've learned, do you feel confident to put your hand up and say, hang on guys, or, you know, hands up here, I've made an error. Or is that something you're still trying to figure out? I guess, kind of to what scale were you at? Yeah, I think um, tech and data science in particular are interesting fields in this respect because you have to make mistakes. I mean, it is quite literally impossible to know everything because it's such a fast-changing field. Yeah. Um, I think there's a really... It's about, it's about iteration. It's about being iterative. Exactly. If you've not made mistakes in a certain, in a week, you're doing something wrong. I think like um, there's a really good quote in Principles where Dalio says that understanding, you have to understand the ability to deal with not knowing is far more powerful than knowing. I think right. something that, that everybody can really can appreciate that framework and apply it to their domain. Because it's better to always have a framework for positively dealing with mistakes than to live in a weird world where you're trying to always understand everything. Right. Sean raises something that's quite interesting to me, though, because I've experienced it myself in a different way. Um, I remember I read a book on productivity and how to uh, set your own system up for productivity that was flawless. It was brilliant. I, over the <laughs> one summer holiday, I completely revolutionized my life by changing how I operated. And then the moment I went back to work, other people not doing it made it disastrous and it he, fell apart and i he, he stopped he's he stopped uh he stopped answering my messages that's what allowed him the productivity <laughs> <laughs> he blocked um, me he blocked me but if i walk into a room so if i walk into a room with with these principles behind me um and they are not part of the culture but i fundamentally they they're, they're they've transcended into values because it sounds like the, the some of these are have become values for you rather than just operating principles of of a business yeah. uh meeting a less failure tolerant or even a less uh, open-minded organization uh have you ever had to walk into somewhere and kind of teach them this through the doing or adjust your practice to f fitting how they work? Yeah, so I think in terms of actioning the principles, right, there's changing the culture of a company is very difficult, right? There's a reason why the average tenure of a company on the Dow is 30 to 40 years, because changing the culture of a Unilever or a GM is an unmountable task. But I think everybody could apply these type of principles within their small units and evolve from there, right? You could turn around to a couple of your close colleagues and say, guys, let's try being as truthful to each other as possible because we know this is coming from a good place. And we know that it's coming, it's tough love in a way because we're all going to benefit yeah. from it versus saying, okay, I'm yeah. going to, I've read principles, I'm going to my company and I'm going to change the entire operating Just plan. For drop the mic on a whole bunch of exactly. people. You're rubbish. You're yeah. doing this wrong. Exactly. You're doing that. Exactly. I don't like your suit. I think Harry as well, um, you make a really good point there because um, cur currently reading Togetherness um, by Dr. Matt Slater, which me and Mark are really hoping to try and get on the podcast uh, one day. And uh, he just he just made a he just made a I'm only I'm only a quarter of the way through, but he he talks about you know setting up values um, much like we've been discussing now. But he does make it very clear that every team is unique, so you know, and and every team needs the values 
for that specific team. So as you said, to just lift out principles from a book and then go into work the next day and go, this is what we're doing. It's, 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 it's very unlikely it's going to work because you need to have a real in-depth knowledge of the team first, you know, pros and cons, and then kind of look to put your values uh, across for your team specifically. Exactly. Have you have you been able to do that then on a smaller scale within your kind of data uh, data kind of science team? Um, have you been able to do that or have you looked to do it um, slowly but surely? Or are there any kind of unique little things that that you would do as a team that kind of gets you all on the right track and and to quote Ray Dalio, get gets you in sync? Yeah, like you say, he's very big in the uh, on the idea of getting people in sync. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I'm blessed in the extent that the team I currently work in is a team in which everybody, a team in which we know we have each other's best interests at heart. So this enables, um, applying the principles of radical truth and radical transparency, um, at least in part to be successful, but it's definitely something, um, I could work and we could work. Uh, like everything to be better at every day. I think even Bridgewater in itself, it's an ongoing process. And it's something that you always have to ongoing, uh, you have to check on an ongoing basis. Because Yeah, there's always going to be something that disrupts or that crosses the line of a principle unconsciously or deliberately. Uh, any new blood, any... Yeah. Any any new idea, and quite frankly, if you are working towards this uh, idea-weighted meritocracy, like the good idea will be disruptive uh, to someone. Yeah, and like you say, right? It's such the ideas are so radical that it's such a battle to use them, right? If you think of kind of the idea of loyalty, right? So. If you work at Bridgewater, or if you adopt these principles, you have a friend next to you who's been your friend for 20 years. You're in a meeting, they have an idea. It's a bad idea. You should go against them and say, hold on a second. You're not thinking through this clearly enough. Read next line that. But you, it's human nature is to be loyal to that person. I mean, loyalty is like an evolutionary trait. Without loyalty, we wouldn't have evolved to the society we have. So it's really an ongoing battle with, uh, yeah, with evolution and your um, and all the rules are towards the kid. And from my point of view, I think uh, if I was to try and implement that, I think that there would need to be, and I haven't read the book, so Sean and uh, Harry, you can tell me if it's in there, that this framework for how I communicate your uh, failing, how I how I approach in a way that makes it easiest for you to not take it personally. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can imagine I've, 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 like family, family counseling. Like how do I, how do I stop being that fight or flight person who's pissed off because you told me I couldn't have my PlayStation yeah. uh, because I broke a window and get down to the who, fact who that are these breaking families? windows. Yeah, so it sounds hey, like it happened quite hey. recently to you. Yeah, yeah exactly. very, very specific. Mark's um, still holding on to it. <laughs> but but having that having that conversation where our our aim is for fewer broken windows rather than uh, feeling like my 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 aim is to make you feel bad for breaking a window. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think also. After you've done this enough, and it's a huge advantage of Bridgewater, you can see the results. And then you know, okay, yeah. the results um, were worse, kind of the pain and the struggle. Where it would be quite, of course, it's quite difficult when you first start this type of process and you don't see the benefits, you just see the pain. 100%. We always like to end our podcasts on pain. <laughs> so that might be an appropriate place to start wrapping it up. This has been so fascinating. And I think that uh, I'd be tempted to say, can we, can we, can we check in on this? Because I think Sean and I, as one of these small units in the place that we work, have both, I've, I've seen it in his eyes, have both been thinking about how can we adopt some of these uh, 
initial principles, so I think I've got some reading to do. Um, is there anything before we do uh, say farewell? Because we've spoken for nearly an hour. Um, before we do say farewell, is there anything essential that you think either boils it down for the listener or that we've missed out on? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, you have to stop me because I could go on, go on, go on for hours <laughs> with, with this stuff. That's that's the people we love on this thing. I think there are two examples which work to highlight highlight principles a lot. Um, the first example is something called the dot collector. And if you watch Ray Dalio's TED Talk, he described this in detail. It's fascinating. So every person at Bridgewater on their iPad has this app. And this app is open during meetings. And you rate the person who is speaking. So if you're speaking about something, I can say, okay, um, Liam or Mark, on the, um, based on what you're currently saying, I'm going to give you a three for openness. Because Jackie raised a point and you did not take this point into account. But I'm gonna give you a nine for creativity because your way of thinking is very new to me. And all this data, as you can guess, is recorded and made public. So it allows everybody, both at a granular person level to see their own weaknesses, but it even means at the department level or a company level, you can see what's working well and what's not. Yeah. Just so valuable. And also, I suppose, I suppose that I, I also have to own my three, I, as in the three that I've given someone. I also have to be able to say the three was because... Exactly. Right. Versus having behind closed doors and you don't get a promotion mm. and you never know why. <laughs> and the second thing is what they call transparency library. So this is basically a fancy word for the fact that every meeting is recorded. So it's recorded and archived and your homework for 15, 20 minutes a day is to watch back meetings and say to yourself, what could be done better here? What would I do in that person's shoes? And how can we optimize the process? The same way that Michael Jordan would rewatch game footage. Yeah, what would I do differently based on what I'm seeing right here? Um, and interestingly, the situation that we're currently in, where uh, I'm certainly working from home, Sean is, I can imagine you're probably working from uh, home as well, that the technology required just for us to have this communication is also the technology that we'd be using to record it. So, I mean, like we're recording this for a podcast, but because we have the tools. Interesting there's a chance that this m might breed a lot more. From an educational perspective, we have to record the interactions we're having with the young people. Um, so we can go back and go in that class, what went wrong because the, the evidence is there or in that class, what was this event because the evidence is there. So it's interesting to imagine that the situation that the world finds itself in at the moment, uh, thank you, COVID-19, uh, may provide an opportunity for this kind of transparency. Interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that, but it's true. Re record your Zooms, people. Record and archive your Zooms. Especially quizzes to make sure no one was cheating and that all the answers were correct because that's all people are using Zoom for right now. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, Harry, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it was uh, amazing uh, for me to meet you. I really appreciate your time. And the stuff you're talking about is blowing my mind a little bit uh, in that way that common sense often seems to, mm. but is quite a difficult thing to, I, I, I can imagine, achieve. Um, exactly. I hope that, yeah, I hope that um, your... Uh, Finding ways of working in the current in the current climate situation. Uh, it sounds like data science is an incredible field to be in at the moment. Um, and as Sean and I always find in these in these chats, it always comes back round to how do we work together? Yeah. Doesn't matter what the field is. Doesn't matter what the the subject is we don't manage to do this stuff on our own how how do we how do we find a way to work together so thank you for bringing it back round to that without us even trying perfect that was all very calculated by the way <laughs> he's got an auto cue in front of him <laughs> 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 
um just wanted to say my thanks harry like um it's really nice when people can put you in touch with like-minded people um chris is a really great guy and he clearly knows some really great interesting people um which is why we got to speak to you so i really do appreciate your time thank you so much we obviously you know we don't have a million subscribers to the podcast yet but we have to start somewhere you know so it's just it's just great to have people on honestly especially at this time during isolation and stuff you know no, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. You are very, very welcome. So there we have it. Uh, that was our conversation with Harry Cheslaw, uh, both talking about setting up this fashion house data team uh, and also Ray Dalio. At the beginning of the podcast, Sean, you said there's some practical stuff in there. And I think you're bang on. There's there's stuff we're literally going to try out ourselves, I think. Yeah, uh, 100%. Uh, as I said, you know, I think there's all different levels of, uh, of what can be taken from this podcast. We're talking about a book from, you know, a founder, CEO of a huge hedge fund. And, you know, we may need to strip that down a little bit and bring it back down to a level that we're comfortable with and the level that we work at. And I think anyone listening to the podcast will hopefully be able to adapt the things that we're talking about um, into their own kind of unique situation. And particularly like the conversation we had with Charlie, where that kind of radical truth and radical transparency change of, of power dynamic, when you're working with young people and your role on the team is slightly separate like how 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 will that work that's going to be fascinating to explore yeah definitely i think i would probably what i'm taking out of the principles um of ray dalio uh, and the, and the the chat we just had with harry is probably looking at it in two separate ways and two separate teams so i think there's one where how do i approach um my colleagues um, and then one where I'm looking at how I approach the young people that I work with um, and the different sports teams within that because I think you would have to take them sort of separately because as you're saying when you talk about radical truth you know we do have the to invitation to tell you you're a terrible coach <laughs> is probably too tempting for a, for a teenager. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, obviously the other way around, you know, telling, telling a young person they're not good at something is something we don't really want to do. Fair point. Um, you know, so it's, it's how do you communicate that kind of, uh, that kind of radical truth. And, and as I said, I think we do have to look at the environments we're working at and in a big kind of stressful money-making hedge fund, maybe that radical truth can be a bit easier to kind of kickstart opposed to other environments that people are in. And that's why I think we should just try and take little bits and pieces um, from it uh, and see whether that does fit into our into our working environment. Definitely. And like uh, Harry said, we are seeing quite a rose-tinted version of it through the book because, you know, people do hate it and leave. Uh it is in some ways it can be quite i'm sure there are ways in which it's been really destructive so uh exactly exactly being being yeah. being aware of that is um is, yeah maybe baby steps definitely baby steps <laughs> always baby steps um, i think nevertheless we will put the link to where you can kind of track down that book on kindle or whatever in the show notes so do have a look down there if you're interested in reading more about ray dalio's principles um sean you said we're talking to a whole bunch of very different people on this podcast i don't think we could get much more different for next week's uh do you want to intro that a little bit so um yes next week is going to be a really fun one um we have uh we have a director of an orchestra um who have been able to kind of infuse hip-hop into their performances and also rappers um me and mark have had the pleasure of seeing uh this group perform live and it was a uh, it was really fantastic and so unique in its approach so we're going to be speaking to lizzie boyce who is the uh one of the directors of rogue symphony uh and yeah very very excited guys and there's a couple of really cool links that we're going to 
put into the end of that podcast um, that you should check out because it's it's really good stuff. Yeah, like nothing we've ever heard before and we're really excited to have her on. So keep an ear out for that next week. All that's left though for now is uh, to say the standard. Please leave us a message wherever you can leave a message, either a voice message on Anchor or at us on Instagram or Twitter at noipodcast or email us mark or sean at noipodcast.show and tell us who do you want to hear from who do you want us to try and talk teams with uh, and what would you have us ask them on that note mark um i did post the um togetherness book by dr matt slater Our quest and to he have did. dr matt slater on is continuing and and the togetherness project uh, account uh, that is run by him uh, liked the post. So we edge a step closer, Mark, in our quest. I'm worried that if we actually, uh, that when we, when we get uh, Dr. Matt Slater on the podcast, we might just have to stop. Like he wrote the book on it. We might, we might solve teamwork. Yeah, no, that, that is going to be the end of this podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> well, the slow decline of There's No I In Podcast continues. Uh, please come back next week. Thank you so much for listening and do shout us if uh, you have any ideas for who we can talk to next. It's goodbye from Sean. Goodbye. And uh, it's always goodbye from me. Goodbye. You must be like the wolf pack. Teamwork. Yes. <laughs>